0: Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. While we're up, if you've come to City Church for any amount of time, You've perhaps started to clock the fact that we have a tradition of um, saying the Lord's Prayer, our own homegrown version, which I botched in the last service by saying, hallowed. And uh, why don't we start our time together off uh, by praying this? So Jesus' disciples asked him if he could teach them to pray. And this is what he said. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Feel free to be seated. Um, You know what? I'm just gonna start off with the text for today because it's a little, it's a bit long, and it has some rough spots, and, um, and, then I'll, and then we'll get to framing it. So if you have a Bible, a smartphone, or an amazing memory, I'm going to start saying that. I loved that so much when I heard it. A Bible, a smartphone, or an amazing memory, you can turn to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to start reading in verse 11 what is probably titled the parable of the pounds, the talents, or the minas, or something like that. So as they they being the people from the last story in Luke 19, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come, or perhaps, as I will suggest to you, because I will come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away, And a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, then I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord... He has ten minas. And he said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will he taken." But as for these enemies of mine, uh, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The word of the Lord. <laughs> okay, so my mother, Fran. Oh, by the way, I'm Peter. I'm on the teaching team here. Uh, my dad is the lead pastor of this church. I don't live here. I work and teach at an all-boys boarding school in Asheville, North Carolina. Would really suggest it. Everything you've heard is true. And um, we are in this sermon series called Kingdom Wisdom. Jesus used to go around telling stories. And there were stories that he had designed to get you to kind of chew on them and walk through them and think about them and ask questions. Like, that seems weird. Why did that guy do that? And as you wandered through these stories, he believed you you would kind of learn stuff about how to, mostly, how to live life in this thing he called the kingdom of God, this idea that God is in the world, rescuing the world. If you want to live in that, well, if you listen to his stories, if you thought about them, he thought they could help you learn how to do that. And... um, we're also doing these um, table groups where people are inviting folks into their homes, sort of around these parables and around the question of what's, what's the good life. So this is the parable that we're looking at this week and trying to figure out what, what can you learn about the good life from a story like this. My mom has this um, blueberry pound cake recipe that I think she got from Southern Comfort and it's the 4321 pound cake. It's four large eggs, three cups of flour, two cups of blueberries, and one cup of, un- of salted butter. And there's more stuff like baking powder, and you've got to sugar the pan. But that's basically it. That's, it's the 4321 pound cake. And um, I thought I would do the 4321 sermon. So for the next 19 minutes and 53 seconds, the- these are the thoughts. That I- this is how I've organized. I've got four pieces of context. Three layers of meaning, two observations, and one takeaway. Keep up. So, how, how, are we, what, how are we supposed to frame this story? Like, what holds Well, there's these four pieces of contextual information that I find very helpful. Here's the first one. This story happens in the Gospel of Luke after Luke chapter 9, verse 51. I know. I will remind you. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem to die. And geographically and emotionally, Luke puts this kind of turn in his gospel where Jesus, he knows what he's going to do. He's going to Jerusalem to fulfill this kind of glorious but awful fate. And so he starts walking, he makes the path towards Jerusalem. He goes through Jericho, um, which is where he meets Zacchaeus. But after the end of chapter nine, you can just tell Jesus gets a whole lot more direct. He just kind of starts laying it out there. And um, at the beginning of all the Gospels, I think Jesus, no, he was a good, he kind of knew what he was doing. He's like, let me give you, let me give you the be- the goodest, goodest part of this good news. So he does like the Sermon on the Mountain. But as he, as he gets towards his cross, he just starts to tell us some of the harder truths that tr- are in someone's Someone's got to say it. And so like anybody staring in the face of their own, even if meaningful, death, I think he just, starts, he just starts to tell the truth about things. And so he travels through Jerusalem and he meets this guy Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus has a pretty shady financial day job, but he comes, he starts following Jesus, and he promises to pay back all of the fraud. And people are so blown away that someone who had a shady job in finance is actually setting things right, that they're like, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's here. And and that first verse in the passage we're reading, as they heard these things, Jesus, Zacchaeus kind of promises all this stuff, and Jesus says, salvation has come to this house, and it seems like folks start to get, if you could say it this way, too high expectations for the kingdom of God. Now you might think that sounds a touch blasphemous, but, but it seems like what's going on here is that people start to think that whatever they meant the kingdom of God was, whether they were on Jesus' track or not, that it was gonna happen like tomorrow. Like if you set Wall Street right, what else can't you fix? And so Jesus has to tell this parable to like pull them back, to give them realistic expectations for what life in the kingdom of God really is like. So he tells this parable. Now, in the decades before Jesus's life, this storyline that he shares actually happened kind of like two and a half times. So Herod, who Herod the Great, who is an ethnically Jewish politician, travels to Rome to receive legitimation from Caesar to come back and rule Judea. And he gets it. Great. Then his son, after he dies, Archelaus, goes to Augustus and also asks that he be appointed king of the Jews. He's slighted sightly. He's only um, appointed the ethnarch or the tetrarch of the tetrarchy of Judea. And that happens in around, I think it's 4 BC, but I'm bad at math. And then like around AD 6, things have not gone so well. Archelaus's rule has not been popular. He goes back to Rome to once again receive the kingdom, and they exile him to France. And so this storyline where someone leaves kind of where they are a politician, they go to a far country to receive the legitimate right to rule, to come back. It's a familiar storyline. It's kind of election cycle style for Jesus' day. And then the last piece of the first four cups of this blueberry pound cake is... um, that right after this is the triumphal entry, which if you're a church kid, you know that that means that that's when Jesus walks into Jerusalem to begin the last week of his life. This is, the last, this is the last thing he says before he moves towards his own death, which of course he knows. And so I think this leads us into sort of three layers of meaning, to put it that way. One, there is the literal meaning of this story. There's this guy He's a local politician, he leaves, he gives some people some money, not everybody likes him, he comes back, he finds these servants, he gets very Oprah, he's like, you get a city, and you get a city, and then he, you know, kills some people, and moves money around. We, you, got, you know, you're awake, it's in English, you kind of get the... Sidebar, I've looked very hard for how much Amina would be worth in, like, modern USD, I cannot figure it out. It's somewhere between like $10 and $100. But it's actually the word for, a, for basically a pound, which is why it's sometimes translated the parable of the pounds. It's, like, it's, a, it's a unit of measurement that was also then used to name a currency, this coin, a mina, a pound, a talent. So, that, I mean, the literal meaning, you know, you can get your around. There's also what I'm going to call the immediate metaphorical meaning. And, and that's the fact that Jesus tells this parable to move into Jerusalem because this parable actually helps explain what he thinks the last week of his life is about. If parables get fulfilled, this thing got fulfilled like eight days later. He has, Jesus is God in the flesh who has been in a far country who is now coming back to Jerusalem to stake his claim as king. And some people are going to ask that he not rule over them, and they will crucify him. And then he will be resurrected as the rightful ruler of them. Right? This, is, this is actually what happened. He takes his disciples, who have been faithfully walking with him. He asks them to continue his work. He goes into Jerusalem, where he is killed by people who do not want him to be the king in the kingdom of God. And then he's resurrected. There's the immediate reference for what Jesus is talking about here, is just what's about to happen to him next. But for the word of the day, the eschatological metaphor is larger. For those of you who are a Boy Scout, this is not the study of feces. That's scatology. Eschatology, very close, tricks you. Eschatology um, comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means the end. And I mean... It feels like since the beginning, people have wondered what's going to happen at the end. And so how does human history wrap up? What is the shape and meaning of human history? How do we get there? What is God doing? Those are these sort of eschatological questions. When you take a big step back from the kind of grand timeline of history, how does that thing hold together? Where does it start? Where does it stop? And there's a diagram that's not in the Bible, but it might as well be, that pretty much explains this. I think I've showed this before. Okay, so over here, at like negative infinity, God creates the world. And then quickly, humans sort of mess things up. And that sinks us into what the Bible often calls the present age or the evil age, this sense that the world we live in is co-opted if not controlled by forces which are against God's design for the world, death, hell, sin, the grave, that kind of thing. And then, in the middle of history... Jesus arrives as this kind of rescue mission into the present evil age. His life, his death, his teachings, his resurrection, the works he does, all of that is is the kingdom of heaven reaching in to this world now. Now, I don't know if you have noticed, but things don't always go right, and we are after the year zero. So, we live in what people sometimes call the between times, the overlaps. The kingdom of God really is, really here, really breaking into the world in the presence of the Spirit and the church. But there are still terrible things that happen. We are in the kind of jam between the inbreaking kingdom of God and the present evil age. But then there's going to be this day, there will be this day where God just kind of calls time on it all. And as the children's Bible says, all the sad things will become untrue. And the kingdom of God will be the only thing there is left in the world. The kingdom of God and reality will be perfectly synonymous and the light of God will light the city. You know, there's that. There's that. And it seems like one of the things Jesus' hearers have started to believe is that they live over there. That if you can convince someone like Zacchaeus to change his life, well, the kingdom of God is coming immediately. And that could mean different things for them. They might think that it means Jesus is going to go in and enact an actual military revolution and kind of take over Jerusalem with some rebels. It might mean, but but they started, their expectations are too high. They think they already live there. But The kicker is we live where they lived. We live in the jam between the times. And this parable is trying to give us a sense of how this all works out. There will come a day when Jesus, who has ascended to the right hand of God the Father to receive the kingdom, will return. And he will call time on death, hell, sin, shame, and the grave. All the sad things will become untrue. This parable isn't just an engaging story. And it's not just about, the next week of Jesus's life, it is also about how time works. And, and there's, I've got two observations, four, three, two, two observations that I think help us get a kind of <laughs> hook in this. Okay, here's one. Um, this parable seems curiously unconcerned with figuring out when the king returns. There's there's a cute little Greek word, which is actually two Greek words put together, and it's en-ha. En means in. Ha means which. En-ha can be translated a number of ways. Now, I don't mean to throw you unprepared into the fight club of biblical criticism, but people fight over how you should translate this. Most Bibles translate them until I return, which is a perfectly acceptable translation. But I'm got my money in Ken Bailey's corner who wrote a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. If you've been looking for someone to spend $14, I would suggest you spend it there. In Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Kenneth Bailey makes, I think, the compelling argument that this is actually better translated because. In which could mean until, but it could also mean since. Since I'm coming back, go engage in business. In the former translation, If it said, go engage in business until I come back, it would make you think that the goal is to just make as much money as possible. Just 5% real return, net all fees, and inflation. Go work that out, and then when I come back, we'll get it. But if it's because I'm coming back, the emphasis of this shifts, and it's it's exactly what the king says when he returns. It's about doing business in preparation for the king's return. We know he's coming back. The servants know that their master will return on the way. And the question is whether he will remain faithful in his absence. Since I am coming back, continue engaging in business and I'll fund it. I'll put the money up. This is a parable not about guessing when Jesus will return with the kingdom. It's a parable about how to live until he has. Jesus actually seems deeply unconcerned with the when question. And I think um, sometimes we are overconcerned with the when question, but we know we're waiting. So we might as well learn how to do that. One other observation. This, there, there just is this bizarre connection between how the servants expect the king to be and how he is for them. You know? Like the one guy who's like, well, I was scared of you because you're kind of a jerk gets treated as though the guy is kind of a jerk. Look, we've all been around. We've all had bad bosses. In my experience, fear is often less helpful of a long-term motivating strategy. Uh, It just doesn't work. At least it often doesn't work. You'd think that if God wanted to get us to do differently... He would just threaten us constantly, just kind of hit us along step by step. But it turns out the only disciple who does not have the energy or the courage or the creativity to go out and do business is the one who thinks most severely of his master. It's the other ones who have no hint that they are scared of their master, that they assess him as this kind of a jerk that go out and invest his money, it is not the God that threatens punishment, that convinces us to stay. It is the God of Jesus Christ who forgives us and calls us home, who seems to be the one that convinces us to stay. It is God who says, even if you go, even if you go, you can come back. That is how God invites us to stay with him, is by saying, even if you leave, you can come on home. So it's, it's the servants that see the master's donation as a deeply generous act. Go do business, I'll pay for it. Those are the ones that seem to have the, as we wait for God, it seems key that we remember that God is the God and Father of Jesus Christ. He is the one who supports and funds our lives, who asks us to work, who gives us something to do, and who sends us on our way with what we need. So this is, this is the one takeaway. Four, three, two, one, takeaway. Part of the good life, part of life in the kingdom is waiting for the good life, is waiting for the kingdom. I've got a friend who's really into positive things psychology. It scares me, but who knows? Maybe I could use it. And he tells me that if you're going to get coached to, I don't know, quit a habit or work out or you can have one of any number of coaches and evidently there have been some competitive studies one coach will go like peter you're amazing everybody loves you if you were a religion we would all convert to you and if you were a deodorant we'd wear you every day and you are the best and this you're gonna smoke this you're amazing and i like that guy i do But as it turns out, it seems the more sustainable way of coaching somebody is to set realistic expectations with a realistic sense of what people can do. Peter, it's going to be hard. I won't lie to you. It's going to be hard. You can do it. You can do it. In steps and days and months, you can do it, but it's not like it's going to be easy. And as it turns out, if that is the message that your coach sends to you, you have a higher likelihood I think Jesus is saying, you're going to have to wait. The kingdom of God really is really breaking into the real world. But it's not all going to happen immediately. I mean, there will come a day. But you're going to have to wait for it. I I feel like I I need this. Because... If I feel like it's supposed to happen and it doesn't happen, I start to think I'm crazy. But Jesus is like, no, no, the world is really, it really is still really messed up. The kingdom of God really is really coming. But you've got to wait for it. This parable is designed to teach us how to wait for Jesus to make the kingdom of God the consummate. Kingdom of God, and what do we do in the meantime? How do we wait? Well, in the parable, the metaphor is we go do business. It might sound a little tough. Go make some money. Go get out there. But if you ask Jesus, well, what is the work? What are the works of God? He'll say, well, you believe God?" And if you ask Jesus, well, how else should I live my life? He'll give you the Sermon on the Mount. Going to do God's business is doing what Jesus has asked to see the world like the Beatitudes, to stay faithful to your vows, to not retaliate in anger, to not lust after another human being. I mean, all of these things, that is doing the business of God to believe in the one that he has sent and to live this life that our church keeps talking about week after week after week to live into the invitation to be a community of spiritually mature people on the way with Jesus in the presence of his spirit. That is how we wait. That is how we do business. We wait for him to come back and call us faithful servants. So why don't we close in prayer and respond and worship before we get back out there to do some business. Lord Jesus, it does often seem as though you are far away. It does often seem as though this present age is bigger than the age to come. But we're coming to you. We are turning to you, asking you to support us, to fund us. In the situation of waiting, we need your kingdom. We desire your kingdom. We are built for your kingdom. We long for your kingdom. Keep us in the game, Jesus. We look to you for comfort now. And we anticipate your return with joy. And we submit all of this to you, King in the kingdom of God, in your own name. Amen.